So the parables of Jesus is the series that we've been in. And as a reminder, the parables of Jesus aren't just these cute little stories that Jesus told. They're not really, they're not these like, oh, just this moral story. Jesus was telling these stories. He was telling these kingdom truths within the, the context of story because he was really toppling these religious systems and these worldly systems that were in place. But he could not, at the time that he was telling these stories, he was already in a lot of trouble. There had already been plots to kill him. There was a timeline at play that Jesus was trying to fulfill. And so he could not come directly out and say the things that he was saying in contrary to the religious system in place or the political system in place. This kingdom that was coming to displace those things is what Jesus was talking about. And so he's telling these stories about this coming kingdom, what it looks like, how it manifests, and how we live it out. And as I've said before, the great thing about parables is that we have almost have a leg up on understanding them compared to the person who was hearing the parable that day, to us, the leg up that we have in understanding them is that we are looking at these parables through the lens of the completed work of Christ. And so the parables begin to make so much more sense when we understand that there is a king on a throne, laid down his life, resurrected, seated on the throne, poured out his spirit. And as we have that as our perspective, we look now at these parables and we begin to see the reality of the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. So as he was teaching the people, those who were listening to him, and through the power of the Spirit, recording this in Scripture for us, to us, this kingdom is real, it is here, and it is accessible to those who are hearing and to us now. And if we are followers of the way of Jesus, his teachings and his parables are paramount for us to study and to follow. And as that brings us to John chapter 10, as we go through the parables of Jesus. And I know that Kim did John chapter 10. She did an incredible job uh, on it. And so I just want to do it again. Um, no, she did a great job on it. I'm kidding. I'm really just going to pull out the one section that talks about um, the thief and the hired hand. And that's what I felt like the Lord was putting on my heart this morning. So as Jesus is coming up to John chapter 10, if you would like to open to John 10 and John 9, we're going to read a lot of scripture this morning to give us context for this parable. Jesus, throughout the book of John, has made a series of I am statements about who he is. And so this is a little bit, John 10 is actually more of a metaphor, but he uses a couple little short stories within there, little short parables that I want to look at. But the things that Jesus has said about himself in John chapter 10, or in, sorry, in John John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the door or the gate. In John 10, he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. That beautiful passage in John 15 where he talks about abiding, saying, I am the vine. And so let's read John 10, 1 through 13 as our main text this morning. And I hope that you're reading along with me. And I read quickly. It's not to, uh, I'm not trying to rush us through or anything like that. Uh, I want to honor the text, the spirit-infused scriptures that speak to our hearts and to our lives. Um, but I hope that you are reading along just in case I read a little quickly. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate. So who is he talking to? Pharisees but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. 
The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, but the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, when they didn't understand, it's like, I'll, I'll try to explain this another way to you. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be kept safe. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So what I want to talk about this morning out of this passage of Scripture, there's so obviously we could spend weeks in that, in that one passage, that one teaching of Jesus. But I want to talk about who the thief is in the context of Scripture. Who is the thief in this passage? And to do that, I have to point at one of the worst chapter breaks in all of Scripture. It is the chapter break between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. It's bad. It's almost as bad as the one between Romans 7 and Romans 8. <laughs> Not quite, but it's pretty bad. So, <laughs> just so we're clear, the Holy Spirit breathed and, and wrote through humans the scriptures, right? But the chapter breaks and the verses, we know that that's just our best attempt at making, at categorizing and cataloging, right? So I can go after a chapter break without going after scripture as a whole, just to be clear. But this is a really poor one. Because the answer to the question of who the thief is, we have to understand the context. Context, context, context. What do we talk about all the time? Context is king. Context, 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 right? And so to understand, well, who is Jesus talking to? Who is Jesus talking about? Who is the thief? Because if you've been around church at all, if you've heard any message at all, you say the thief has come to kill, kill and steal and destroy, but Jesus has come to give life and life to the fullest, right? So who then is the person implying the thief is? In every teaching you've probably ever heard, the devil, right? Is that true? Well, let's find out. Chapter 9, going back to verse 24, because we love to read together. There was a blind man who was healed. This is the story where Jesus puts mud on a... The, it's, it actually starts with this, I think, a great question. They come to Jesus and they say, here's a blind man. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who sinned? He's blind, so clearly there has to be a cause, like something bad happened. There must be a reason that it happened. We, we do. We explain things. I think we still do that today. Something bad happens in our life, and we go, man, this must be a repercussion of something. I, I wonder if I did something or someone else did something or whatever. And so the disciples are asking, I think, a really, a really good doctrinal question. Why is this person blind? Is it something they did or something their parents did? And Jesus said, it's not any of those things. It's so that my glory could be shown. 
And, and so he, he, he then moves to heal this blind man and, and puts mud on his eyes, says, go and wash. And he goes and washes, and as he washes off the mud, he can see. And this miracle, this powerful miracle takes place. It's one of, the, one of these miracles that is confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah and, and that they had been watching for. The Pharisees had been watching for distinct miracles that would take place because there was many people claiming to be Messiahs, many false prophets claiming to be Messiahs. And so there was this reality that they said, oh, if they can do this and this and this and this, then we will believe that, that this person is who is claiming this is actually the Messiah. And so he did, he did these signs, these miracles, to confirm that he was the Messiah. And so the Pharisees are on this investigation to figure out if Jesus really is the Messiah, and they're, they're following him around. They're asking him all of these questions. They're, they're, they're following him to all of his miracles. Every time he does a miracle, it gets him into more trouble. This is all leading up to him raising Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day. And after he raises Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day, it is the final confirmation that Jesus is saying, I've checked every single one of your boxes that I am, in fact, the Messiah. And instead of them choosing to worship Jesus as who he says he is, they decide what? We're going to kill him. So this is all leading up to this. And so he does this sign, and the, the Pharisees are following him around, all these miracles, and they're going, well, what about this, and what about this, and what about this? So they're asking this, they're interviewing this man who has been healed. So they summoned him in once, they talked to him, they talked to his parents, they, they bring this guy back. Summon him who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth, they say. We know this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Okay, this is a direct shot right here. And they responded to show you how much of an insult that was in their mind. Um, do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. Your face. Um, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answers. Now that is remarkable. This guy is funny. He's a funny guy. He's got some sarcasm, a little, little snap to him. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening of eyes of a man born blind. That was one of the signs. They would say, the Messiah will heal someone who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This is so often how religion responds to a move of Jesus. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, those who see will become blind. So who is he talking about here? Who is it that thinks they see? but are becoming blind, the Pharisees. He is showing them everything that they are asking for, but the more that he shows them, the more they turn an eye, a blind eye, to who Jesus is. 
Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say that. Oh, sorry, I love this line. Jesus said, 39, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. So I want us to see that Jesus' judgment, it isn't punitive, it is restorative. Powerful to say Jesus came as judge. Jesus came to judge. That means he came to make things right. Not punitively, but restoratively. And so he brought this man sight. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Remains. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by the, some other way is a thief and a robber. So, who then is Jesus talking to, and who then is the thief? When Jesus said, All who came before me were thieves and bandits, the thief comes only to kill and steal, steal and destroy in John 10:10. 10, 10. There is no hint in this context that he switched topics, that he switched audiences. This is a story of the interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees directly after John 9. And so in John 10, this is his response to those religious leaders and the way that they were treating the man who had been miraculously healed of blindness. So when we are studying context, we expect that within a single parable or section of Scripture that symbols should stay the same. So there's no reason for us to think that Jesus suddenly started talking about Satan or the devil right in the middle of this conversation rebuking the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So in the overall context, context, if we're moving from John 9 to John 10, down through this story, down through this discourse about, about the I am's and the I am the good shepherd, and then on to this parable in John 10, 7 through 10, makes it clear that the thief is a reference to the failed leaders of Israel. I'm sorry, Elisha, I'm a terrible teacher. I I take it all back. I'm teasing. (laughs) This is what Jesus, I'm I'm kidding. I'm sorry, I tease people when they get up. It's a round room. What am I supposed to do? Um, (laughs) These are some of the things that Jesus said to the failed religious leaders of the day. You promise life, but you, have, you lay a heavy yoke on people. You promise health, but you leave people sick. You promise salvation, but, you, but people who follow you end up in bondage to your rules and to your regulations. If you want more on Jesus' thoughts on the religious leaders of the day, as I often tell you, you can go to Matthew 23, and you can read exactly how at, towards the end. So early in Jesus' ministry, parables and stories that left people going, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. I wonder who he's rebuking. Move him further along in the journey. You get into Matthew 23, and he goes, okay, so time is running out. So let me just say some of the things that I've been saying to you guys. That's what Matthew 23 is. It's the unpacking of, this, of these types of rebukes that he is making through story. So Bible study tip. In general, symbols in the New Testament were not new. He wasn't making up new symbols. He's using something that the audience would be familiar with. So Jesus and the New Testament writers used existing symbols from the Old Testament or from their culture. 
So in a good example of that is the shepherd. When he calls himself the shepherd, it's actually a metaphor for king. For a thousand years before in the Old Testament, Jesus had been used, or that people had been using this metaphor. Which is why in John 10, 24, if you jump ahead, the people come directly to Jesus and said, well, you just tell us if you're the king, if you're the coming king, if you're the Messiah. Because you've been alluding to it. How has he been alluding to it? By using a symbol, calling himself a shepherd, that in their history and in their writings was directly correlated with the king. So this is what Jesus is saying as he veils these words and packages them together. John 10, 24, the people finally surrounded him. and They said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And so the line of questioning also confirms that the thief does not refer to Satan. Thief is not used as a metaphor for Satan in the Old Testament. It's not used as a metaphor for Satan in the New Testament. It is not used as a metaphor for Satan in any early church writings or any writings of that period that we can find in any Jewish literature. However, the thief and the bandit are used as metaphors for the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's at least 20 other ancient Jewish documents that describe the ruling Jewish priests as thieves. And the fact is, is that Jesus was intentionally reusing an existing shepherd parable from Ezekiel 34. Again, if you would like more reading on this topic, you can read Ezekiel 34, and you'll see where Jesus is pulling his source material from as he's talking about the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. The religious, the failed religious leaders who have brought people away from the heart of God. And so, God condemns those failed religious leaders in Ezekiel 34. They've stolen from the sheep. They've killed the sheep. They have caused them to become scattered. And God says that he will remove these hired shepherds and will step in himself to replace them. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about himself as a shepherd, a king, a messiah, and them as thieves who come to steal and kill and destroy. It is a direct rebuke in response to John 9 and the ongoing battle that he's having with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, saying to them, I am the good shepherd. You are nothing more than a hired hand. You offer salvation, but when salvation is needed, you can't lay down your life. You will run away. I will lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus is doing that same thing. That's what he's doing in John 10. He's condemning the leaders of Israel as thieves, and then he points to himself as that true shepherd. What about the wolf? Again, we got to find the devil in this passage somewhere, right? So it must be the wolf. Jesus is speaking to them of failed religious leaders. That's the thieves and the hired hands. He's talking about their failure to protect people and to take care of the sheep. And he's, but who are they failing to protect people from and what is happening? It is the failed, sorry, it is the false prophets and the false Messiah. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in what? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So everything that Jesus is saying has a context in it. And I teach you all of these things just to remind you that as you are reading Scripture, that we do not automatically insert our presuppositions and we do not automatically insert ourselves into the text just because we've heard it that way. That Scripture is not talking about a devil or Satan or anything like that. It is talking about Jesus the Messiah versus the failed religious leaders of the day who had constructed a system based on an old covenant that Jesus had come to fulfill and to remove that he was dealing with 
that had led the people's hearts and lives far away from God where they were more concerned about their piety and their appearance than they were about seeing the Messiah who was right before them. And so what he's really saying to them is who today is blind? This young man that I healed so that he could see me or these religious leaders who are so caught up in their own understanding of scripture and rules and regulations that all they see is themselves and they cannot see the Messiah that is standing right before them. Does that make sense? So now we ask ourselves, then what then, if, we're, if, we're, if we are saying, okay, so that's the context of it and that's what that verse means. How do we bring that principle into our own world? And so as we are talking about uh, studying Scripture, understanding Scripture, understanding context, I want us to be devoted to discovering what did it mean to the people who were speaking it and those who were hearing it. I want us to be devoted to that. But I do not want us to be so devoted to that that we forget that the Holy Spirit wants to lead us on a process that says when we center what's happening here, we can pull out a principle and then we can bring that into our lives here and now. We cannot skip that process by immediately inserting ourselves into every scripture we read. Do you you get that? There's nuance there. Do you get the difference? I'm like, we kind of end up at the same place, but let's not skip the work that needs to happen so that we understand the scripture for what it is as best that we can. So if we want to extract, extract a principle to our lives, since there aren't a whole bunch of failed religious leaders walking around, (laughs) there is a few Um, there are failed spiritual leaders or said another way things that you and I look to that have failed to lead us into spiritual health whether that be a person or a group a particular worldview our family, our money, our status sex, substances, relationships sexual or otherwise systems And structures that we have fallen into or given ourselves to. Where we find identity and comfort and belonging and satisfaction for our itch. And all of these will fail us. And they will fail to produce the Jesus-centered, abundant life in us that he has promised us in John 10, 10 as the contrast to the thing that comes to steal and kill and destroy. He has come that you would have life and you would have life abundantly. So there aren't religious leaders and there isn't a failed religious system. But are there things in my life that if I give myself to, it steals from me, it kills parts of me, it destroys my story or my future? Are there spiritual things? Are there things that are leading me into spiritual anemia instead of spiritual health? And I would say absolutely. Do we have false prophets today? Sure. I I mean, if I spent some time on the internet and wanted to get all worked up about stuff on the internet like people love to do, um, I'm sure I could find some false prophets. But you know what? It's not my ministry. I don't really think it's anybody's ministry to spend a bunch of time on the internet calling out false prophets that they have no relationship with. But I'm sure you could find some people that are like, that's a false prophet. Yes. There's some in churches. There's some in different cults. But to expand that definition to something that you and I can apply to our life, I would say this, anything in my life that promises abundant life but delivers loss, death, and destruction, said another way, it isn't working. It isn't working. 
It's not working for you. And we have to take a look at it and say, is this thing that I'm following, is this thing that I'm letting into over the gate of my life, over the fence of my life, is it working to bring me into the promises of Jesus that says that you would have life and life to the fullest? Is this bringing out spiritual fruit? Is this bringing out Christ-likeness? Or am I allowing things into my life that is sowing death and destruction and loss? Not protecting and not taking good stewardship of my choices and my habits, my thoughts and my words and my actions. So my question for you today, are you experiencing overflowing, abundant life? If you have entered into Jesus who says, I am the gate if you have entered into Jesus and you are actively following Jesus, the good shepherd, as an apprentice, as a disciple, the answer will be yes. Yes, I am experiencing abundant life. I believe that with all of my heart. Even in the most difficult of times, you will experience the abundant life of Jesus. It is not contingent upon what is happening out here. It is contingent upon the reality of his presence in me and shepherding me and leading me even in the most difficult of things. Even when I have to say no to something that I desire in the moment because I believe that he has a better promise for me in the future. Even when I have to walk through unexplainable loss that I will never be able to reconcile in my heart. I can say, if I am following Jesus and he is my shepherd and I am living and walking with him, I will have this abundant life that he promises. But if I'm looking to other people or sources or solutions for spiritual health that are not Jesus, they will fail me. And I will be left wanting. And I have a choice to either continue to grab onto more of that or to let go and say, Jesus, you alone are the source. You alone are the good shepherd. You alone are the one that brings about your abundant, truly full life in me. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks, the flock is scattered. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. We don't have a lot of false prophets running around, but we are surrounded by false promises. They fail us in the worst ways, at the worst times, when thieves are coming to steal and kill and destroy. And while the context for this passage dictates that the thief is the failed religious leaders of Jesus' day, that does not mean that we do not have a, a very real enemies to our spiritual and physical lives who will steal and kill and destroy at any opportunity possible. I am helping you translate this verse correctly. I am not saying that there is not an enemy to your soul spiritually that is out there trying to destroy you. I just would like to use verses correctly when we teach that. I would offer an application to this verse that the thief be defined as anything beyond what we know it to mean in Jesus's, when Jesus was right there in that moment. I would offer that we would define it as any, to further from that, that we would define it as anything that steals or kills or destroys the transformative work of the Spirit making you more and more like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.16, and the, fruit, and the fruit of that transformation, Galatians 5, including law-based religion or the Satan within the universe or anything else that has access to our life that isn't surrendered to Jesus. 
nothing. Okay, I want to talk about that for just a second. Nisha, I'm going to talk about that for just a second. Okay. So law-based religion, Satan, the devil, our adversary, the accuser, however scripture describes that entity of pure hatred and sin, or anything else, anything else that has access to our life that isn't surrendered to Jesus. He is the gate. Nothing comes into your pasture that doesn't come through Jesus. And for those things to get, if you're a follower of Jesus, for those things to get access to your life, your heart, your body, your mind, they have to come over the gate, I mean over the fence. And what does he say? Things that have to come over the fence of your life are thieves. Yet, we are the hired hands in some ways. I'm going to stretch this metaphor. But I believe that we are those hired hands that do not do, often do a good job of protecting the fence and sending everything through the gate, through the shepherd who is tending the gate. So when I say everything in our life should come through the gate of Jesus, I, I mean everything in my life needs to come through the filter in the gate of Jesus. So what does this look like practically? It means that as I'm doing an inventory of my life, my choices, my coping mechanisms, my, the way that I interact, the way that I talk, the way that I live, the way that I handle relationships, the way these all have this simple conversation with the Lord. Jesus, is this coming to my life through you and through your access point? Or am I saying, I love Jesus and I follow Jesus, but I'm bringing things over the fence that are ultimately going to be failed spiritual leaders or, said another way, things that fail to lead me into spiritual health. Everything. And as you're having this conversation with the Lord, it looks a lot like this. So let's talk about, let's talk about, what do you guys want me to talk about? Give me, a, give me an example. What's, what's, a, what's alcohol? Can we talk about that? Can we talk about drinking? Let's talk about alcohol. I don't know, alcohol is not bad. Like, you know, it's, it's whatever. It's, as is everything else. It's not <laughs> inherently either bad or good. It is how we use it and our relationship with it that defines whether it's good or bad or healthy or whatever. So if you're uh, hyper-religious and you've grown up in a background, you're like, alcohol is bad. Okay, no, it's not. Settle that in your heart. Come to a place of peace where you can be like, I can drink alcohol. And then what happens? You get to say, but I'm not going to just go drink alcohol. I'm going to say, Jesus, is this something that you want in my life? But what about the person next to me? What, Pastor Ryan, I've seen him. He has a beer sometimes. Therefore, I can have beer, right? No. You don't get to adopt my freedom without my process, without understanding my obedience to the Holy Spirit. So I can, go, I, I can tell you all about the rules that I have in place around alcohol and about the freedom that I have in drinking alcohol, which actually isn't very free because every time I want to have some alcohol, I need to ask Holy Spirit, should I drink tonight? 
And the times that I don't ask that question are the times that I am saying, come on over the fence of my life. I'm going to do this thing because I have freedom. It is a misuse of freedom to activate it without surrendering it to Jesus first and always. The moment that alcohol becomes unhealthy for me is the moment that I don't have the maturity to surrender a freedom where I can be like, I can drink alcohol. Great. Can you also, in humility, surrender that to Jesus? And if he says, no, for the next five years, no alcohol. For the next 10 years, no alcohol. For the rest of your life, no alcohol. If I am truly surrendered to Jesus, then I say, absolutely, you are the good shepherd of my life. And you are bringing me into abundant life. And if you tell me that alcohol is not healthy for me, then I am not drinking another drop of alcohol because everything in my life needs to come through the gate of Jesus. That is the type of surrendered and healthy life that I can say to you, you can do whatever you want. But the moment that you do whatever you want without first surrendering it to Jesus, you are in sin. And I'm not saying it like heaviness, like, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm just saying that unsubmitted parts of my heart and life to do whatever I want, even if it is something as simple as I'm going for a walk right now when I need to stay present and work through something with my wife. Is a walk sinful? No. Is it in that moment? Yes. Do you you understand what I'm saying? The heart, do you understand? Please get the heart of what I'm saying. If we want to be truly mature believers and followers of Jesus, we have to steward our freedom. And if we don't steward our freedom, our freedom will lead us into bondage. And all we'll be doing is telling people around us how free we are to do all these rad things because we're free Christians. All the while, we are undermining the spiritual fruit and health that Jesus wants to bring into our life because our freedoms that allow us to do anything need to be surrendered to Jesus. That relationship needs to be surrendered to Jesus. That use of whatever needs to be surrendered to Jesus. That attitude needs to be surrendered to Jesus. That response to the person at work or your husband or your wife needs to be surrendered to Jesus. Everything in my life needs to run through the filter of the gate. There shouldn't be a single practice or person or substance or attitude or behavior or thought pattern or relationship in your life that isn't first submitted to Jesus. Why? 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Your adversary, the enemy, the devil prowls around like a luring, roaring, I said luring Ryan. A roar. <laughs> That's pretty much my preaching. <laughs> He's just a luring Ryan up there. It's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I understand that I'm using that verse in this moment. I'm using that as a proof text, and for that I apologize. But trust me, when you look at the context of that verse, that is in fact what it is saying. There is an enemy that wants to use everything in your life. And often he's not going to be able to get you to commit the large sins. So he's going to be using the small unsubmitted things in your life to undermine the fruit of the Spirit coming out of you. So it's important that we surrender and submit everything to the Lord. It comes through that filter. It comes through that gate to be into my pasture. Thieves come over the wall. Things that I want in my life that I can't surrender to Jesus shouldn't be in my life. And until I can give them to Jesus and ask them if they can come into my life as a healthy part of my life, then they shouldn't be in my life at all.
Either I can't steward them in maturity or I will never have those in my life because they're not healthy for me. What's healthy for you and what's healthy for me are two totally different things. What is the difference? It is a surrendered life to the Holy Spirit to be able to have these ongoing conversations with the Lord. One thing I want to say, since I'm taking up the time of response and communion and worship, and for that, I apologize. Um, after we're done, you guys need to go get your kids at 11.45. I've used up all the time. Um, but I really felt like I needed to talk about that because I didn't want to say that thing and just leave it, leave it un, unexpressed. Um, but communion will remain open. We will tur- we'll turn on some music in here. And as you guys want to hang out and connect and do those things, go get your kids. Just do that in that area. But if you're needing to respond to this word this morning, please feel free to stay in this room in prayer, in, in communion. Um, I want to say a couple things. I've got five minutes left, so hang with me. I'm going to use it all, okay? <laughs> I, I, want, I want to talk with you about this personal communication I have with the Lord that we all have with the Lord, that we expect to be able to hear his voice. The undergirding of that is a deep love and passion for the word of God. So the more that I read the word of God and and, and hear the word and seek him in the word of God, I I learn his heart and his voice and his character. And that way when I ask him, Lord, what is your heart for me in this moment that I'm angry with my kids or that I'm frustrated with my wife or that I'm hurting and I just want to lay down and be, be depressed instead of getting up and dealing with something. These types of things... Those are moments where I believe that Holy Spirit is active and present in my relationship with him, and he wants to speak to me just as he wants to speak to you. But that is not a replacement for the word. It is an actual byproduct of a healthy relationship with, the, with Scripture, is the ability to confidently hear his voice and know how he's leading and guiding and directing you. I want you to have passion for his word. And as that passion becomes your foundation, I also want you to have a passion for hearing his voice in an interactive way like I'm describing. He wants to talk to you about everything in your life. He isn't talking to you about everything in your life because you're not asking him about everything in your life. And I promise you, that, that I didn't mean for that to sound like some kind of rebuke. Jeez, I'm sorry. Um, got really somber in here. You guys okay? Are we... We're doing all right. I'm just saying, he will talk to you as much as you open up your heart and life to, to, to spend time hearing from him. Prayer. This is what we'll be talking about so much in November. A life, a cultivating a lifestyle of prayer with a quiet place where we can hear his voice. Not just us giving him our list of things to do, but to really sit with him and have these types of conversations. But if you're going to ask him, so um, we, we use the example of alcohol. Um, and I'd be happy to talk with any of you if you want to be like, Ryan, tell me more about your journey with alcohol or whatever, anything. I, I'll share with you. But I don't want to share it with you in a way that you adopt my rule of life, um, but that you would find what is healthy for you. And um, so anyway, I, I will just enforce that any time anytime that I just go, oh, I'm going to have a drink without surrendering it to the Lord, that are times that I have to come back to him and say, forgive me for that. That was not healthy. I was actually, I was not feeling great or I was trying to deal with this, or I wasn't thinking. Like, I want us to have that for everything in our life. And I know we chose alcohol as the topic, so I'm sorry if you feel picked on, um, or if alcohol feels picked on. Wait, that's, that's whatever. The one thing I would say, the last thing I want to say, is if you're going to ask these types of questions of Holy Spirit, if you just ask for the rule, you're just going to get religion. But if you could ask him a follow-up question and you could say, 
Why? That's when you come into righteousness. And righteousness means being right with the Lord, which means that you are in the right soil, in the right moment, in the right season where he's planted you, and you are right with him, I mean, the sun is shining, the water is coming onto the plant of your life, and spiritual fruit is coming out. You are righteous when you understand the why. He will tell you the rule, but if you will ask why, he will explain to you either his heart behind his request of you, or he will explain to you the why that you need to deal with something deeper before you have that freedom. So if I say, God, can I have this drink tonight? I would really like to make myself an old-fashioned. And I'm not like sitting in prayer. I need to go to the other room, babe, and have my five minutes of prayer before I have a drink because I'm, I'm gonna, so holy and I'm going to burn some candles and it's going to be holy. And then I'm going to come out and I'm going to be like, oh, I can have my I can have my old-fashioned tonight. It's not that. It's this, Lord, is this okay right now? But if he says no, the follow-up question, it's not, okay, that's my rule. Now I'm following rules. I've become, I've become religious. If I say why, and I open up my heart to that, he's going to say something deep and meaningful to me that would help me so powerfully and profoundly. Ryan, you're not in a good place right now. Let me just search your heart for anxiety or depression that's hiding, that's lurking in there or sadness that's not being dealt with or frustration from the day or tiredness from the day that you are trying to disconnect from a part of yourself that I would like access to. And if you just do that, then I don't get that. And so the why is like, I'm not going to have that old-fashioned tonight because I'm not in a good place to be able to steward my freedom. So I'm going to say, no, not tonight. The Lord is showing me that there's some things in me that I need to deal with. Again, I'm not trying to make this into some sort of like super religious thing that I'm walking around. You can ask the people that live with me. It's not like, oh, Ryan's praying. (laughs) While they're all having an old-fashioned, I'm like, hmm. Well, I guess someone didn't pray and ask the Lord about what was, what was going on deeper inside. All I'm saying is the Lord wants to talk to you about these things. He is the good shepherd. He is the gate. There should not be anything in my life that comes over the walls of the gate because those are the things that want to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus is the one that wants to bring me into abundant life in every area of my life. So if I'm going to talk to him about these behaviors, he's going to say, yes, do that. No, son, don't do that. But if I just go, thank you, now I have a rule to live by as opposed to, Father, why? There's hurt in you that you need to deal with. There's anger in you that you need to deal with. There's something deeper that's happening. I want to talk to you about that tomorrow, you know? And I'm like, okay, Lord, let's do that. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Is there anything in your life that is stealing and killing and destroying that is getting access to your life that isn't going through the gate of Jesus. I want to ask you these three questions. What's the thief in your life? 
What is the thing that's coming over the gate? What is the hired hand? What is that thing that you go to that says, like, this will solve it, this will fix it, but when really push comes to shove and life gets sideways and you are hurting and in pain, that thief runs away, that hi- I'm sorry, that hired hand runs away because it's not Jesus. Jesus said, all of this other stuff will leave you, forsake you, forget about you, turn its back on you. That thing is not gonna provide what I have for you, but if you go to it every time, it becomes a hired hand in your life that runs away when times get tough. Learn to lean on me. I will never run away. I laid down my life. And are you ready to follow the good shepherd? The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. You and I, he calls us by name. And he leads them out. When he has brought out all that are his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know what? They know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. The sheep listen to his voice and he calls you by name. Jesus, we declare that you are the good shepherd. And I ask right now that anything anything I said today that would come off as like just religious stuff or punching people in bruises that they already have from, from unhealthy preaching or spiritual leadership or whatever. I just ask that you would cover that, Lord, that that would not be the heart that any of this is received in. We declare that you are the good shepherd, you are the gate, and that there are things that have access to our lives that come over the walls of our lives without coming through the gate of you and your word and your word into us, your word to us, and those things are thieves. And ultimately, they just want to steal and kill and destroy the fruit and the abundant life that you have for us, Jesus. So we surrender to you. You are our good shepherd. We say yes to following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I didn't stop at 1145. Thank you, guys. I love you.